Good morning. Uh, like Pastor Corey said, my name is Carter, and I'm the uh, campus pastor for our Southwest campus. And so if you're new to FAC, and you didn't know that we had a second location, well, lucky you, right? So we meet out of Glenmore Christian Academy in the southwest corner of the city in Bridalwood. So if you have friends or someone you know that's looking for a church and lives in that quadrant, why don't you tell them to come check us out? We meet at 11.15 uh, on Sunday mornings. And just like Deerfoot next weekend, we're having our kickoff event doing an outdoor service as well. So we'd love to have new people from all over the community to come and join us. Uh, so like uh, Corey said, uh, we are ending off our series, Left on Red. And so I just want to see a show of hands. This is about our 12th week, I think, of doing this. So who finally knows what Left on Red means? Okay, we're about less than half. So either you guys haven't been around or just... We're not quite pushing that message through, hey? So essentially, left on red is if you're, you're texting someone, right? And you have those, re- those read receipts underneath the messages. And sometimes it says delivered. If they open it, it says read. So you know they've read it. But then you're like, why aren't you responding? Is it me? Is it you? What's happening here? I feel awkward. But that's essentially what we're saying. And that's kind of the analogy we're using for Paul's letters. Is these are messages that Paul has sent to churches, to individuals all over the, the area where he was doing his missionary journeys. And our question is, was there action? Did people respond and actually have it change their hearts and, and lives? We don't know the answer to that. But we do know that Paul sent these messages. So... Just to get caught up, maybe you haven't been here throughout the whole summer. You've only caught pieces here and there of just a brief synopsis of the entire series. And so we've gone through all of Paul's letters. Uh, They're in order in your Bible, beginning at Romans and ending at Philemon. Uh, And we've kind of just broken them down. See, what are the major themes that Paul is writing to? And we've seen a couple different things. We've seen Paul's rich theology come out in his letter to the church in Rome. We've seen his temper flare up in his letter to the church in Galatia. And we've also seen uh, his love he has for people, for individuals, in the letters that he writes to his co-workers, Timothy, Titus, and the one we're going to go through today, Philemon. We've also seen the love that he shows for the church in Thessalonica, seeing the persecution they've been under and how their faith has actually thrived in the midst of it. And the general focus for Paul and his messages are often the, uh, the, why, the why and the what, The why being doctrine, right? So the central themes of God throughout scripture and the what being application. You know, how do we apply this? Now, if you notice that he actually doesn't focus a lot on how, like how does this actually live out? Because in a lot of the letters he writes, he's actually trying to keep people from legalism. He's trying to keep people from following a set way of doing things. That's how the, the old law and the religious teachers were trying to conform people to, to live out the law. And Paul's saying, no, that's not what we want to do. We want these to be things that transform us and that be what dictates our actions. And so I think Paul actually that very specifically. The other significance to Paul's letters is that because of the, the heavy theology that's contained in his letters, and the very little narrative, right, as opposed to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's mainly narrative, that the letters to Paul are actually going into a, a great, the greater detail of, of Jesus that is described in the Gospels. So the teachings of Jesus, Paul says, I'm going to expound on these to see what the greater detail is for us and what they mean for us. And so now the final letter of Paul that we'll be unpacking is his letter to his faithful friend and co-worker Philemon. Okay, so first off, show of hands, who calls him Philemon? Okay, who calls him Philemon? And who doesn't know and just calls him Phil? 
Perfect. Doesn't matter. We're good. So Paul probably wrote this letter around AD 62 from one of his imprisonments in Rome. It tends to be a theme from Paul, writing from prison. Maybe you should get that figured out. But Philemon was a wealthy and influential man living in Colossae, who during one of Paul's ministry journeys to Ephesus came to know Jesus, that Paul led him to faith. He became a leader in the church, and we don't know how he ends up now in Colossae, but once he's there, he is now a significant leader in the church in Colossae. We know that he is wealthy because he has a home that's actually large enough for his church to gather in his residence. And we also know that he's wealthy because he has a slave named Onesimus. Now, slavery in the Bible is an interesting topic. Does God condone slavery? Does it upset him? If so, why is it not more explicit in Scripture? And how can Philemon, the leader of a church, own a slave? That just doesn't compute to me. I don't know if that's the same as you. This doesn't make sense. How can you own a slave? Now, there are two kind of ideologies of slavery in Scripture. If we look at the Old Testament, it's the, the Hebrew way, right? And so the Hebrew form of slavery uh, was a lot different than the, the Roman Empire view, which you see in the New Testament. So the Hebrew way, typically if a person was struggling, right, their crops weren't producing, whatever the case may be, they couldn't pay for stuff, they could go to a neighbor and they could lend, whether it's uh, food, money, resources, whatever the case may be. And they could lend so that they could provide for their family. They could continue on. And year after year, if they're in the same, same place, they continue to loan. But there comes a point where you can't continue to loan anymore. And they're eventually in this debt to their neighbor. And so it puts them in a position where they would offer their own labor in replacement for pay. Now, the expectation of the master would that he would actually be treating his fellow neighbor, his fellow Israelite, fairly and well with respect, that their service actually was not one of permanence. This was not a lifelong commitment, but it actually had a limitation to it. We see this in Deuteronomy 15. It says, if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press." Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is why I give you this command today. So honor is still kept upon the individual and they're acutely aware of the value that God has placed on people, which is the driving force for this. And now at the end of the, the time of service, the servant was given a decision. They could either take the possessions given from their master and they could go on their way, try and reestablish themselves and be independent. Or they could say, actually, it's more favorable for me to live with this master. And so I'm going to give my life of service to you. And they would actually forfeit, not, sorry, not forfeit. They would give their life to their master and they would serve them for the rest of their life. But when we read in the New Testament, we read it through the lens of the Roman view, the Roman Empire, where slavery in that era is a means to an end. The Roman Empire relied on slaves. This is how they built their economy. This is how buildings were done. This is how farmland was taken care of. Now, and, and, and slaves in this time would not just be laborers, right? They would not just be farm workers. They would not just be in the mines, the really brutal environments, but they would also be doctors, teachers, teachers. Child care workers, 
They would take care of homes. And so essentially it was whatever the, the wealthy person, right, the Roman needed the slave to be is what the person would become. And the Roman, it was their, they were their property, so they could treat them however they chose, but it benefited the master to treat them well, to have a healthy slave to care for their interests. Now we see that slavery is addressed in the New Testament. We see it in the letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, and the Apostle Peter's first letter. And in every scenario, the message is obey your master. Work willingly as if working for the Lord. It's submission to earthly authority. Because in doing that, it results in you obeying God, your heavenly authority. Pastor Doug Beckert from Emergence Church in New Jersey puts it this way. He says, the New Testament, by way of contrast to the old, speaks to God's people, the church, as subjects living within an already existing political entity, the Roman Empire, whose laws and norms were the result of human political philosophy, not God's moral will. In the New Testament, God is not at work establishing a political entity, but is rather redeeming a people for himself, called out from every nation. Accordingly, God gives his people instructions on how to live in already existing social structures. Right, so we see the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God is building a people. In the New Testament, he is saying, in the midst of what's already built, this is how you should live. And so the Hebrew view and the Roman view of slavery are vastly different. The Hebrews want to have an honorable way of someone to repay their debt, and the Roman view is, what can you do for me at all costs? But when we look at slavery in our current context, we look at it in the 21st century, we see a more vile and sinister plot at work. We see women, children, men who are being abused, trafficked for the gain of wealth. And that's why organizations such as International Justice Mission, who was with us last week, are so vital to our present day situation because they are going into these dark places and seeking to redeem these individuals, to bring them out of these issues, these, these forms of slavery and abuse and torture, and actually not just to bring them out, but to actually bring their perpetrators to justice. And it's a beautiful work that they are doing. The letter to Philemon is written during the Roman Empire. And so for someone to own a slave, even a Christian, was not a huge deal. It would not have been uncommon or even frowned upon. And the catalyst for this letter is actually the slave himself. It is Onesimus. It appears he's run away. We don't know why. Perhaps he has stolen money. Maybe he's offended Philemon in some way. But he's run off. And what Philemon did is he ran away to the most heavily populated city in the Roman Empire, Rome. He's trying to disappear into the masses. But as fate would have it, as if God had some sort of ordained plan, he ends up meeting Paul in a jail cell, of course. Where else would you meet? And he somehow ends up becoming a follower of Jesus. That Paul brings him to this newfound faith and starts to disciple Onesimus. And he cares for Paul. And quite possibly, he was the one who maybe tended Paul's wounds or injuries in prison or another case. Maybe helped him write some letters, maybe penned for him. And it's here where Onesimus shares with Paul his situation. And Paul knows Philemon. He's like, I know that guy. We were in Ephesus together. It's like, he's like, hang on a second. Let me write a letter. And so Paul writes the letter back to Philemon to facilitate reconciliation between the master and the slave. 
And the tone of this letter is unique. And to grasp the whole scope of how Paul actually writes this, we're going to read the letter in its entirety, all 25 verses. But before we do that, let's just take some time to pray together. So, Father, we know that your presence is here. We know your Holy Spirit is with us. And we know that you are already at work, uh, that you are already mending hearts and and restoring relationships. But, but Father, I pray even now that as we are unpacking this letter, that you will be doing an even deeper work within us. That those walls we've put up because of the pain that we've experienced, that you will start to just chip away. And that this would be a time where we can see just the radical love that you have for us and help that heal our hearts, Father, as we learn more about what it means to restore relationships. Amen. Okay, so before we dive in, let's set the scene. Okay, so a letter is written to Philemon from Paul, and we don't know exactly who delivered it, but a lot of scholars actually speculate that Onesimus was the one who brought the letter back to Philemon. Super awkward, right? Now, when Paul sends a letter, it's not just meant to be, like, delivered to an individual. It's meant to be read in front of the entire church. Okay, so picture this room right now, okay? So this letter is meant for an individual, but you are all listening in on what's happening. Okay, so one day, Philemon hears a knock at the door, right? He goes to the door, opens it up, and he sees Onesimus, his runaway slave. Can you just imagine just that tension as he opens up the door? And Philemon is fuming, right? The the nerve, this guy, to come back. Like, does he not understand the situation? And for all we know, Philemon probably reached for a rod to beat his slave, as is his right. He's allowed to do this. He's in the backswing, ready to clock the guy. And Onesimus says, wait, wait, I have a letter from Paul. And Philemon, mid-swing, starts to lower his hand. And the anger turns to intrigue. He's just like, wait a second, Paul. I know Paul. He's a good buddy of mine. He's responsible for, for my life. He's responsible for my faith in Jesus. This is incredible. And he goes and he starts to gather his whole church. And so imagine, this is Philemon's home, like, sick home. This is your home, Phil. Nice job. He gathers everyone in and him and his wife, Aphia, sit right in the middle, right center in front of Onesimus, everyone else around. Onesimus comes, opens the letter, and he starts to read with everyone listening. And this is what it says. Paul writes, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about the love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. What a great way to start. Can you imagine hearing that about yourself? Philemon's probably just like sitting there, just like looks back, just like, guys, you you hear this, right? This is why I'm in charge. (laughs) Paul keeps going. He says, therefore. Pay attention to that, that word specifically in Paul's letters when he says, therefore. It's like because of what I just said, now listen to what I'm about to say. Therefore, 
Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. What a guy. It is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you from my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. Side note, Onesimus' name actually means useful. So when you look at the Roman uh, way that they, do, uh, they had slaves, they often named their slaves just based on what it was they were. So they couldn't name them in birth order. Right? So if you look at the letter to the Romans, there is a person there named Tertius. Right? It's literally, he's named third because he was born third. Onesimus is named useful. So that just kind of gives you an idea. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could have taken your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that, you, so that any favor you, you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that he, you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man, as a brother in the Lord. At this point, Philemon's like, oh, this is going sideways real quick on me. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Man. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Have you ever thought to sign off an email like that? And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristocrus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So in other words, all the bros that you're with in Ephesus, who you're with, they know what's up. They also send greetings, and so they'll also hold you accountable. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Onesimus finishes. Rolls the letter back up and just steps back and he just takes it in. What an awkward scene that would be, right? The disbelief. Everyone heard what Paul is asking of our buddy Philemon. The manipulation that Paul uses is absolutely insane. Like every time I read this, like I am just like shocked. I'm like, this is how he wrote this letter? Who does Paul think he is? Thinking he just passive-aggressively tell Philemon what to do. Philemon's like, I give you money. I fund you. Who are you to tell me what to do? The nerve of him to ask and then to use his spiritual authority to guilt him into taking back his slave, but not just take him back, to elevate him, to treat him as a brother. Nope. No thank you. Not doing it. 
What Paul is, is, is asking Philemon to do to us may seem very simple. It's like, yeah, like, why not? Like, he's been serving you. Like, just elevate him. Like, what's the big deal? But this is not just about forgiving and forgetting what happened. This is about Philemon upending social norms in current day. Philemon was within his right to punish Onesimus for stealing away, uh, for stealing from him. And in this time of history, if a slave offended the master, if they ran away, they could be crucified, they could be beaten, or they could be branded with the letter F for fugitive. This is not like what we see in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, where there are actually cities of refuge, is what they're called, where if you feel like you've been treated unfairly, then they could go and run away. And someone there could actually care for that slave who ran away. In the Roman Empire, if you run, you're done. And the person caring for their slave is now responsible for you as well too. So Paul actually puts himself in a very precarious situation. Paul knows the life transformation that has to happen in both Philemon and Onesimus. And while he never exactly instructs Philemon to do this, And take his slave back is a very obvious exhortation for Philemon to act out his faith in a sacrificial way. Paul doesn't say just welcome him back and forgive him. Paul says elevate him. Welcome as a brother, fully equal in social status. This has radical implications because now if Philemon's buddies, like their slaves, they see what's going on, then all of a sudden they could be like, hey, elevate me. Paul says to do this. You should do it as well too. Elevate me. I don't want to be your slave anymore. All of a sudden, Roman Empire, what it's built upon crashing down. So radical implications. Paul then puts a hard guilt trip, and I mean hard guilt trip on Philemon. He says he owes Paul his very life. Now this is fascinating. Paul puts the relationship with Jesus above the physical value we have on life. Is that interesting? Paul says, because I led you into this relationship, I am responsible. I am the reason you live. You don't live because you have breath in your lungs. You live because you know Jesus. And then to put the cherry on top of that guilt trip Sunday, Paul says, I'm coming and so are my buddies and we're going to see how you've responded. So in other words, it's, it's, it's not voluntary. <laughs> it's like, we're coming. Paul is not bound by relational expectations. The fact that Philemon funded him does not help him or allow him to tiptoe around the hard truth that he needs to share with his friend and co-worker in Christ. And Paul is also a master of written communication and knows how exactly to make Philemon do what needs to be done. And Philemon actually doesn't need to be told what to do. He does need to be reminded of his obedience to Jesus, though. I think that's something that we all need to be reminded of. And that obedience to Jesus is not just forgiving, but it's, it's how Christ is working in our hearts and then working through our actions. In verse 17, Paul uses the word partnership, which is the Greek word koinonia, which means sharing or mutual participation. If you've been following along, kind of doing some of the background work that Pastor Corey has been putting out a lot with the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, he's kind of like the the head honcho for Bow Project. But this is what he says in this video. He says, faithfulness to Jesus means that all his followers are equal partners who share in the gift of God's love and grace. And this would not be simply a theoretical 
idea that remains in our minds, but something that must be evident within our actions through our relationships. So Paul is inviting Philemon to practice giving love, grace, and forgiveness to his slave, just as Jesus has done to us. Fascinating. He is inviting him to see the glorious image of the cross and how the ground at the foot of the cross is level. That there are no tears when it comes to Jesus. We are not separated by social class or ethnicity. That Jesus says to all, come. And then Paul, to solidify his statements, he actually puts himself in the position of Christ and he says, whatever debt that Onesimus owes you, put it on me. I will pay that debt. There is no more excuse for Philemon. The debt has been paid. All there is left to do is to follow the commands that Jesus tells us to follow. And so the practical implications for us are are fairly straightforward. I think it's fairly easy for us to hold a grudge. I mean, I, I do it. I currently am holding one right now, if I'm being honest. I got something I'm at work at right now. It's easy for us to justify our anger and resentment. It's like, do you know what they did to me? They don't deserve that. Are you kidding me? And I know some of you in here, right, the, the act that's been done against you is, is truly horrific. That there are things that have been said, that have physically done, that perhaps there's abuse, betrayal, whatever the case may be, and it's left a sincere and savage mark on your soul. And it's not just that easy to forgive. And so I want to recognize that. So I want you to know that that's, that that's a real reality for a lot of us in here. But then there are those in here who are holding on to resentment simply because you just don't want to forgive. It feels good to hold power over someone. It feels good to hold that, that grudge, that debt someone owes you. You want to hold on to that hurt just to justify that hurt because actually it's a lot easier than coming face to face with our pain. It truly is. But Jesus commands forgiveness. No strings attached. To forgive one another, even if they don't acknowledge the pain that they have caused. And Jesus wants us to offer forgiveness out of obedience to him, not out of guilt. And we can see that in the words that Paul gave to Philemon as well. He said, I could just command you to do this, but I want you to voluntarily do this. So again, puts himself in the position of Jesus. And friends, if we don't freely offer this forgiveness, we are going to end up harboring this pain and this bitterness for the rest of our lives, and it will slowly kill us. Um, A story from my past, talking about forgiveness. So a couple years ago, I was doing a summer job, and uh, one of my bosses, he he implemented this rule for our whole whole crew that we had there. And the the rule they implement really, it impacted me in a great way. Um, And... uh, it had a ripple effect that he didn't understand for me. And so then I went home and I was just harboring this anger and this frustration because of this decision that he made against me. With him not knowing, he had no idea the impact it had on me. But as I'm stewing in this anger, in this resentment, in this bitterness, I am placing this unfair image upon him saying, you did this intentionally. You're trying to force me out. And then all of a sudden, all these lies are coming in. All these untrue things that the enemy is starting to just stir up in me because I am just not able to deal with this. 
And so what actually ended up happening is I had to come face to face with why I was so angry. Why was I hurt so much? And it led not to me wanting forgiveness from him, but it led to me off asking him to forgive me. Because it was not something that he intentionally did. It was something that I placed upon him. So I actually had to ask him for forgiveness, for viewing him in that way, for thinking he was acting in a way that was not kind or understanding. The power of forgiveness is incredible. And you may say, but Carter, you really, you really don't know what's happened to me. Like, you have no idea of my story. You have no idea of the pain that I've experienced. And you're right. I, I have no idea the majority of the pain that you've experienced. But can I tell you something that Jesus does? Jesus knows all the pain that you have gone through because he's experienced it himself. You've been abused. Jesus has been abused. You've been betrayed. Jesus has been betrayed. You've been abandoned. Jesus has been abandoned. Friends, he is the one person who can speak directly into your situation and the pain that you are feeling this morning. As he was nailed to the cross, willingly sacrificing himself for you and for me, he literally cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the moment of his crucifixion, he's offering forgiveness. And then he gave himself for us, not that, so that we can live in pain and bitterness, but so that we can live in freedom. Louis B. Smeads said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. Isn't that fascinating? Whenever we think that we're trying to hold someone else captive, we're actually holding ourselves captive. Unforgiveness puts us in bondage. We get caught in a place where we hold others hostage. But like Mr. Smead said, we are the ones who are being held. And culture tells us that people who harm us don't deserve our forgiveness. Why would you forgive them? Look what they did to you. Hold on to that. Like that's power over someone. That's what culture tells us. But the way of Jesus is countercultural. And it's never about what we deserve. And it's all about what Jesus has already done. You may think they don't deserve forgiveness, but what, you, what we need to remember, all of us here, is that we did not deserve forgiveness either. Yet Jesus gives it to us. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We don't forgive because it's easy. We forgive because we are forgiven. So may I offer a suggestion to you today. That in the moment, I am going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to bring people to mind. I think that's the, the fun thing about being a Christian is we can just ask the Holy Spirit what he wants us to do and he will tell us. It's fantastic. Um, we're going to pray that, that he bring to mind someone that we have offended and that we need to ask forgiveness from. And if he speaks to you, I want you to write that name down. You can take the piece of paper and the seat backs in the front of you. You can put it in your phone, wherever the case may be. And I want you to try to make a commitment today that you will either write a letter, send a text, make a phone call, 
or maybe even potentially go and visit this person and ask for them to forgive you. Then I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to bring someone to mind that has offended you and that you need to offer forgiveness to. Same thing. Once you write this name down, send a text, make a phone call. Maybe you need to go visit them in person. Now, I know for some of you in here that the, the offense that's been done against you is, is extreme. And to have communication with this person is, is not a healthy thing to do. It actually puts you, yourself in a very dangerous position. And so if you're in that position, I'm not saying communicate. But what I am saying is that maybe there is some deeper work that God needs to do in your heart in, in the privacy of just you and him. And maybe that's the moment there where God's going to say, I want you to forgive because you have been forgiven. And I also want to recognize that this is not just a, a simple prayer that all of a sudden, right, the pain's gone. That's not how this stuff works. You can forgive, but you will not forget. And that's just the reality of being human. But the thing that happens is that when we say that I am releasing this debt that you are into me, right? That's what we do when we hold people hostage and we don't forgive. We're saying, you owe me. You're in debt to me. But when we forgive, we are saying, I am releasing you of this debt. And that, friends, is freedom. God loves to see that in his children. Um, this is something I'm, I'm currently processing in real time. Like I said, it's funny how when you kind of get are given something to, to speak on. All of a sudden, God's like, bing, this is you. And so even in my own life, I feel like, if I'm being honest, there's something that I am currently dealing with where I felt like I was owed something. And now I'm processing what it means to release that and to forgive. And so I, I, I know that this is not as simple as it sounds. But the other night, uh, I was going for a run as I was just kind of processing and, and thinking through, you know, what God wants to say. And I don't know if, if there's anyone else, but God really speaks clearly, clearly to me when I got nothing going on in my ears and just out in nature. My brain just works a bit differently out there. Um, but as I was running, he brought Psalm 51 to mind. And so this is a psalm that King David wrote after the prophet Nathan confronted him of his sin. And so if you know the story, this is King David. He has an, an adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba um, just for this, because he thought she was beautiful. And then he gets her husband killed so that he can take her in and make her his wife. And so the prophet Nathan knows what's happened and he comes to David and he says, David, I know what you have done. I know your sin. And it brings David to his knees and he writes this in Psalm 51, starting at verse 10. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Living in a state of unforgiveness actually keeps us from living out the greatest gift, which is God's forgiveness that he has to offer us. And so maybe your next step is simply to sit at the feet of Jesus and to say, I need you to create a clean heart in me. 
I need to repent. I need you to show me in my life what it is that I'm holding on to that is holding me captive to pain, anger, and bitterness. Because for some of us in here, maybe it's been so long that we don't even remember what that is. That we're just angry for some reason. But I think today God wants to point that out to you, which, which will be painful, but it will be very life-giving at the same time. We cannot be people who live in a constant state of broken relationship. That's not how we were created. God has created us to dwell in community. That's our purpose. That's how we were designed. To be in relationships that need, that need to be places of honor, encouragement, exhortation. Exhortation is a good thing. These are places that we need to be. We need to be in these places of relationship. And so there's some of you in here that need to go and restore relationship. And forgiveness may seem radical, but it will radically change your life. Let's pray together. So Holy Spirit, we invite you here to speak to us. And we ask even now that you will be bringing someone to mind that we have offended and that we have not restored that relationship with. Maybe it's a a parent, a sibling, a coworker, a friend. Perhaps something has been said that they didn't realize was painful, but we've just been holding on to that pain for so long. Holy Spirit, reveal that name to us now. Now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you will reveal a name to us that has offended us. Perhaps it's abuse, neglect, abandonment, betrayal. Bring that name to mind and help us to seek out forgiveness. This may take years to unpack. This may take years to heal from, but Father, we ask that we would start that process now so that we can be a people who seek forgiveness and reconciliation because that is what you have done for us, that you have reconciled us to yourself. So may we bear your image by doing that in our relationships as well. Amen.